This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We're the pinnacle of the hype cycle, Trevor. You just see it in the popular press. And I'd say even we're starting to ebb a little bit off that pinnacle towards this disillusionment of tech adoption, where we're starting to get a little bit real with it. What we're basically looking at is a new form of AI that can ingest an immense amount of unlabeled data and unstructured data. And it can do so in a way that that foundation model is actually quite adaptable to various downstream tasks. Whereas in the past, AI was really built to do one thing really well. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. This is your host, Trevor Duran. I'm really excited because we're going to try a slightly different format with today's episode. More debate between our resident virtual health emerging technology expert, Andrew Rebhan, and Justin Cassidy, who's an expert in many, many things and covers so many fields that he wanted to jump in here and add his perspective to Andrew's. Thank you both so, so much. Let's dive right in. Andrew, I'll go to you first. We're going to be pretty focused on the potential impact of AI at health systems and across the healthcare industry. Give us the definition that you use of everything that's encompassed in artificial intelligence. Lots of debate on this particular issue here when we come to definitions. It is quite simple. I just think of artificial intelligence as a concept of machines increasingly being able to replicate human behavior. That can mean a lot of different things, but ideally the AI term is an umbrella term. And there's a lot of subfields and techniques that fall under this. I think of those subfields really falling along a spectrum of what we might label more rudimentary or maybe simpler forms of artificial intelligence. And this is debatable for some. They may not ultimately think of this as true intelligence, but there are means of decision tree logic or expert systems or robotic process automation that, in my mind, are still under the AI banner. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you're dealing with machine learning capabilities, deep learning and neural networks. This is a truer push towards that goal of artificial general intelligence or systems that really replicate human thinking and behavior. There's a sense of debating where true intelligence actually comes out of these machines. If you're essentially building a logic that is a series of if-then statements, or if you're simply automating a series of processes that don't have to actually evolve over time, then it's quite clear why some people would look at that and say, well, this isn't intelligent at all. It's really just a bunch of ones and zeros acting as we've done in other contexts with computers. On the other end of the spectrum, when we start to think about, especially today, what some of these large language models and other generative AI functions are able to do to the point where they're almost replicating human behavior, where we can't even decipher in many contexts whether something is being produced by a machine or by a human. That certainly pushes the boundaries of what we thought was capable with AI. Well, and Andrew, I love your definition of AI. It's real simple. It's mimicking human behavior, but sometimes our behavior is not rational or perhaps the best process that could be had. In truth, artificial intelligence, the result of whatever the training sets, it is what it eats. And if the data isn't so good, if it's not acquired in an equitable way, maybe it's measured in a specific facility that might not be measured the same in another. There's some serious potential gaps with that data collection and data set analysis. Even the data that's sort of processed in order for the algorithm to read it, there can be some loss in the translation. All right, we've been talking about the potential for AI in healthcare for a long time. What's new now? Help me understand why this topic popped in the last six months or so. It had been maybe a little dormant for a while. 
we obviously don't want to lose our listeners by getting overly technical. What we saw at the end of last year was the chat GPT craze. This really pushed a lot of AI capabilities into the mainstream. Outside of the term chat GPT, you're likely to have also encountered the use of the term LLM, which stands for large language model, and also generative AI. There's these newer terms that have been thrown around quite a bit lately. Naturally, we wonder how did these come about and what's different about them compared to what we've heard about AI use cases in the past. Where a lot of this new energy started around ChatGPT and generative AI is actually based on research that comes from organizations like Google and Stanford University. Long story short, they basically figured out how deep learning and neural networks can actually become quite advanced in terms of how they're trained and how they ultimately produce output. Building on what they termed as foundation models, what we're basically looking at is a new form of AI that can ingest an immense amount of unlabeled data and unstructured data. And it can do so in a way that that foundation model is actually quite adaptable to various downstream tasks. Whereas in the past, AI was really built to do one thing really well. If you had an AI model that was built in the past around sepsis prediction, that was the singular narrow task for that AI solution. And it probably was not going to do much else beyond that. A foundation model, on the other hand, is ingesting tons of information. It's basically a generalized model that we can now use for any number of kind of downstream tasks beyond just some single narrow domain. So we're really creating new AI here that is very adaptable, very diverse, but also given its size, given that a lot of these large language models, for example, are dealing with hundreds of billions of parameters, if not more at this point, we are dealing with systems that are very powerful and are able to produce output like we've seen with ChatGPT, where it's quite impressive in terms of what it can ultimately do. Justin, do you want to add anything? There's a couple of reasons that why now. I think that number one, ChatGPT passed the Turing test, which was the traditional mark for artificial intelligence. Essentially, if you can have an intelligent conversation with a computer and not realize it, you pass a Turing test. This is a traditional mark of cybernetic entity. That's number one. So it's the generative AI that's what's new. And in healthcare, why now? I think that we've forgotten some of our lessons learned from other players that have been in the game for a while, like IBM Watson and their overhyped promise that never really delivered. And as an industry moving forward, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm for this being a huge workforce win. It's also just, we're at a point in time in healthcare where many of our health systems are struggling to make margin. And this might be a workforce workaround to help reduce burnout, stress on our providers, and perhaps also increase the bottom line. Justin used a word I'm going to come back to an overhype. It's really hard for me to tell as a lay person. You've forgotten more about AI stuff than I even know. Is it overhyped or underhyped right now about the potential? We're at the pinnacle of the hype cycle, Trevor. You just see it in the popular press. And I'd say even we're starting to ebb a little bit off that pinnacle towards this disillusionment of tech adoption, where we're starting to get a little bit real with it. Part of it's coming from a string of new potential regulatory hurdles. Number two is lawsuits that we're already seeing in other industries, labor workforce strikes, and particularly in creative industries, where you're starting to see folks such as screenwriters start to say, hey, I want some protection that my writing is not going to be 
be ingested into a large language model or my image might not be captured by a studio and then replicated ad nauseum as an extra without any pay or downstream. There's a lot of examples of that. There's also the potentials for harm that are starting or perhaps haven't really happened yet, but will happen and will receive lawsuits. And then finally, I think that there's significant hesitance that we should have for opening up new back doors into our systems that could lead to cyber attack or other types of compromising of patients' protected health information in new ways. What we type into those AI chatbots is never really forgotten. And in other industries, say folks that have typed in plans for cell phones, for instance, engineers, those have been ingested and then regurgitated by the chatbots. Some of our savvy health system members are already starting to put guardrails. They're blocking the IP of ChatGPT on health system networks. Also cognizant of the fact that their health system employees are accessing these tools on their own cell phones, reminding their workforce that you should be mindful of what you type into these bots and the resulting information. Give it a human gut check. Does it pass the sniff test? Is it clinically relevant? Is it actually good information? Is it just something that sounds really good, but is not exactly congruent with current medical practice? We're getting pessimistic, Justin, today. I'm very pessimistic. Yeah. But on the other hand, there is significant promise, regardless of whether you think it's overhyped or underhyped. The fact that ChatGPT got 100 million active users within a year, that's rather incredible. I would be curious to know how many of those 100 million are still using it regularly, in particular those that are not in marketing. On this question of overhyped or underhyped, we can acknowledge first that ChatGPT by this point, it's been out for quite a while and it's natural for user adoption to take a hit after a certain number of months. One of the other factors around AI is that it is essentially an underlying technology that if it's essentially adopted to a point, it starts to disappear into the background. If you want to talk about overhyped and underhyped, the fact that an organization like Epic has decided to plant their flag and bed generative AI functions in collaboration with Microsoft, which is tied to OpenAI, the creators of ChatGPT, as well as their ownership of Nuance, and the fact that they're piloting this with some notable health systems, that is a pretty significant shift for a core EHR player that, as far as technology goes, is holding a lot of sway in this market and often keeps a pretty tight grip on their technology capabilities. That indicates there are some real legs under this as far as momentum. I know that AI has been dragged for having a lot of hype that did not meet reality over the last couple of decades. But that being said, in my discussions with the likes of data scientists and developers and people that are working with AI today, when they speak to these emerging foundation models and these new generative AI capabilities, they're all on the same page by saying that they really truly think of this as a quantum leap in AI capabilities. They knew it was coming and it's coming quicker than what they thought. Andrew, where's the value? Part of the value is going to come from actually getting our hands on this and testing it and using it within controlled, secured environments. Part of the hesitancy and what's kind of holding back the industry in many respects is that's saying that people just fear what they don't understand. Frankly, we're still at a stage where we have individuals that are still just trying to decipher what's the difference between robotic process automation, machine learning, deep learning, and these other broad terms. We're still starting at the 101 level. If we're thinking about, well, how do we scale this? How do we deploy this in, in these different service lines? How do we make money off of this? All of these questions that are the second, third, fourth level up when we're still just trying to define terminology, that shows that we still have a lot of room to grow here and to really test this out. 
Just thinking about AI, I mean, you're raising some great points in terms of the revenue generating potential, but I look at it more like, is this just a new cost center? And how do we mitigate the cost there? Even if you have a partnership that may not cost you anything, it certainly still costs yourself as a health system and your employees their time. If it doesn't quite materialize or if kinks have to be worked out, that's not insignificant. I don't think any technology investment is without its potential challenges as far as costs and time and workflow and all of those common sticking points. On the flip side of this, my perspective on AI broadly is that we have been hearing of the same deep-rooted challenges in healthcare for many years that seemingly go on with no end or no solution. And I'm talking about challenges like our staff is burnt out. We're dealing with too much data. We have too many messages coming in through our patient portal that our staff can't address realistically. We have capacity challenges, runaway expenses in other parts of the business. We are dealing with more complex care delivery. And there's just this constant string of issues that, in my opinion, if it's done the right way, and that's a big if, artificial intelligence has that capability to tackle several of those deep-rooted challenges in a way that is increasingly unrealistic for human beings to do just on their own. When it comes to matters of dealing with capacity or dealing with clinician shortages, this is not something that you solve just by hiring more people or just growing into a new market. It's just not always that simple. But if we could think of the appropriate ways to embed some of these new forms of AI, that really starts to chip away at some of these longstanding challenges. Andrew, I couldn't agree more there. Thinking about pain points for health systems, it's certainly this isn't a panacea, but if you have some sort of strategic initiative on capacity planning, We've seen significant gains here in capacity command centers. Two great examples are the Duke Institute for Healthcare Informatics, or DHI, and Michigan Medicine's M2C2 facilities. We think about these capacity command control centers, the idea of understanding, monitoring patients in real time, and thinking about their rising or lowering acuity, making sure that their care is rendered in a socially competent way, just enough, just in time, but also that the patient is receiving care at the right place at the right time. This is really hard for individual humans to continue reevaluate all the data that's being generated throughout a patient's care journey. And it is really quite remarkable what those scripts can do and then escalate certain patients to the attention of the capacity command control team, which we're also seeing new roles being created in healthcare, veneer traffic control for patient triage. It's really inspirational in many ways. And this is a prediction, too, that our SG2 experts, Brianna Motley in particular, gave as a part of our executive summit this year that AI would become a tool that was indispensable in these capacity command centers. And frankly, we're already seeing it. Let's go down a couple of tangents on a couple other potential applications that probably each have their own potential hype and maybe overhype. Let's start with clinical applications. One of my first questions was around, we've heard about the potential for a long time, and at least in my simple mind, it had been a decision support tool for clinicians. Where do we stand with that today? It seemed like that got bunny hopped as a potential option. Is it still on the table? What are some of the challenges and opportunities there? When it comes to using AI across any of its various potential applications, naturally, a lot of folks do tend to start out by looking at some of those more administrative, operational, financial applications, just because they are concerned about any potential for patient harm or anything that would essentially overtake a clinician's decision-making when it comes to matters of diagnosis and treatment, which are naturally just higher risk applications for AI. We've seen, especially in the generative AI space, which is still fairly new, a lot 
lot of the early test cases are around things like helping with documentation or helping draft patient notes or something that just alleviates some of the more administrative workloads of our staff. We have seen over time that there are institutions that are certainly starting to leverage AI for more of those clinically oriented use cases. I'm thinking of one that's been in play for quite a while that we've seen some measurable results come out of is using AI as an early warning system for sepsis prediction. You mentioned Duke earlier, Justin. There's Sepsis Watch. This is a particular solution that comes out of Duke Health. They've also got out of Johns Hopkins their TRUES solution. So that stands for their targeted real-time early warning system. They actually did this in collaboration with a company called Bayesian Health. We're essentially looking at AI models that are able to identify cases of sepsis with pretty high accuracy. They're reducing time to antibiotics. They're reducing overall hospital mortality rate by double-digit percentages. These are studies that are out there, and they're showing some measurable results here in the clinical domain, and I would expect that to just grow over time. I'd say, you know, what's different here from a sepsis bundle, from a essentially a clinical algorithm that's imposed and just the awareness that's built around it? That's a good question. If we start to think about how these newer foundation model capabilities have expanded the scope and scale of the amount of structured data that you might get from an EHR that is typically used for the risk prediction score, but now we're starting to incorporate an immense amount of unstructured, unlabeled data as well from some of these models. We've seen the magnification of the capabilities of an AI once it's just able to ingest more data and that magnifies the performance of the model. I would assume that we would start to see another evolution of some of these capabilities because those examples that I brought up from Johns Hopkins and Duke Health, that was stuff that wasn't necessarily focused around generative AI capabilities or some of these newer foundation model capabilities. Those are just existing AI functions that we've had for a number of years that are very valuable. They've just been overshadowed over the last year by this new chat GPT craze. I couldn't agree more with the examples that you gave. And certainly the metrics are really astounding, the improvements that they've had. Another that's been in the press recently is UC Davis. They've done an excellent job improving quality for sepsis with some of their AI scripts, but they've also gotten some negative press. Papers published on essentially taking away nursing control from these AI scripts, and it sort of bristled the workforce in the wrong way. Nurses felt compelled to do certain activities on patients that were experiencing leukemia on top of what were supposedly signs of sepsis from the artificial intelligence, but the increased white blood cell count was due to the underlying cancer. And nurses felt compelled to take blood draws, screen for sepsis, even though they knew it wasn't there. Certainly there are flags that can be thrown to the process, but nurses still felt compelled to respond to the AI prompts. It's interesting to think about how there could be negative consequences depending upon how you implement. When you have articles that are published with press that seems as though we're replacing our clinicians with a machine, it can lead the public to think even less of us as a system. And that's a real challenge from a reputational management perspective. I mean, if you read the comments of these articles, they're not so good from just the lay public. We're having an algorithm tell a nurse who should know best for his or her patients what to do. So it's kind of interesting. Do you have any thoughts, Andrew, on that risk management? Yeah, that was coming across my mind when you were talking about some of the nursing pushback is that was a failure in change management and having a strategic implementation approach to this. As we go about implementing, sourcing, evaluating AI solutions, we need to have the ultimate end users at the table being able to weigh in to determine how can this be used? What is the problem we're trying to address? How does this influence our workflow? Is there room for customization depending on each user? There's many types of questions 
solutions that we should be planning up front rather than just simply deploying a solution and hoping it works. I would assume that organizations, if they're running across that kind of resistance from their staff, it's likely something where they need to look in the mirror to see how did we actually go about deploying this and did we do it in a thoughtful way? On the patient side, that is fair. I've seen a couple of surveys now that have noted generally you've got anywhere from 65 to 70% of U.S. adults that are very uncomfortable with the idea of their doctor relying on AI for treatment decisions or care delivery decisions. That top line metric is not the most positive, but we've also seen that there's a bit more nuance to that data when you start to actually break down specific applications. So patients are typically more receptive to the idea that an algorithm could help with analyzing their patient history to make sure that their doc is actually informed about what they're doing in a given care encounter. They're probably not going to be as comfortable with the idea of an AI helping with surgery or something that's a bit more intense or treatment intensive. There's differences there. We also need to account for differences demographics. There's a study out of the University of Arizona that showed that patient trust can be directly impacted by age. It could be impacted by whether a patient is religious or not. It could be impacted by their political affiliation, by their race. So there's lots of different ways that we can split that data. Even if the overall metric shows, we still have a lot of room here to build trust the appropriate way. For one, informed consent is going to be a big deal here. Anytime AI is used or involved in a patient service or patient care or patient interaction, patients need to be told that upfront and they need to be able to opt out of that. We need to build that sense of transparency to ensure that patients are consistently informed and educated and aware of how AI is affecting their healthcare. And Trevor, these large language models, can they answer the questions for qualifying exams for individual specialists? And you can see that the medical specialists, it tends to do a much better job than the surgical specialties. There you see a difference between the art and science of medical practice. Certainly the more technical, skilled types of procedures and so on, it's just going to be very difficult for AI to make a big dent there early. But the diagnostic activity, it's certainly going to be sooner rather than later. And some specialties, it's already hit quite hard, in particular radio and pathology. Those are areas that are just terrific promise and it's automated looking at certain images or doing more repetitive types of tasks. And there the script really can get a heads up over a clinician because it, instead of viewing hundreds of cases under one's experience, it may have experienced millions. So it might be able to see much more nuance in those types of diagnostic activities. In that particular use case, there's definitely some research out there that does indicate when it comes to analyzing chest X-ray images for looking up something like acute respiratory distress syndrome. An AI on its own can actually outperform the human in terms of accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity. But when you combine the two, particularly when you've got an AI that can fairly autonomously navigate a large volume of images, but can defer to a human for the complex case. Cases, that's where we actually see not only the highest level of performance from those measures like accuracy, sensitivity, and specificity, but we're also seeing dramatic reduction in the need for physicians to view all of those images. We could see double-digit decreases in the amount of images or screen reading workload for the humans to ensure that they're able to kind of focus on those more complex, higher value cases, and they could let the AI more or less handle the fairly straightforward cases. 
Andrew, I really like the chest x-ray example. There was an article in Science Magazine recently sharing that researchers gave x-rays of pulmonary conditions to the chatbot. And this is to what is new now, what's different about artificial intelligence models. Artificial intelligence was diagnosing not the pulmonary condition, but also able to diagnose diabetes based off of lung x-rays. And it ended up having to do with how the x-rays were diffracting through adipose t- or fatty tissue. And those that experience heavier bodies tend to be more likely to have type 2 diabetes. These unintended intended consequences that could result, collateral benefit or perhaps pitfalls that could be resultant of these algorithms. It's interesting to think that there will be a lot of these kind of unforeseen connections. Okay, lightning round. What's one hurdle or maybe the next milestone you're looking for that's going to tell you the path, trajectory, timing, potential low-hanging fruit of where AI is going to make the first impact? Justin, I'll go to you first. You have to look at the industry liquidity right now. Who has cash on hand to actually fund these models? Because you're going to have a significant upfront expense before you see any downstream payoff. Look at our margins as an industry. Healthcare is barely scraping by. We don't have a lot of cash on hand. We're already worried about our bond ratings. And I don't know if this is exactly the time for most systems to be investing. Now, large academic medical centers, your researchers are already very involved. You already have partnerships with industry. And that's really awesome for you. But I think about a lot of the smaller health systems that that we interact with and just the tyranny of the present might detract away from this investment in the future. What is a big sticking point that we're going to need some clarity on is likely on the regulatory front. If we think about regulating AI, it is a complex, slow-moving space that does not have a lot of clarity at the moment. A lot of stakeholders are actually holding back on diving headfirst into this until they get some of that top-down oversight from somebody, whether it's the government or some other kind of institution that could help to put some guideposts around how do we use this, how do we ensure that it's safe and responsible, and then very likely, how do we potentially get paid for this? There's going to be a lot of those questions that need to be figured out over time before we start to, I think, see more traction here. Both good ones. Well, I'm glad that you are both on my team so that you can stay closer to this than I will. And I know our members are glad that they have you both to rely on for your insights and perspective here. So thanks so much for sharing it. And as always, I look forward to having you back on SG2 Perspectives. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us and or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at SG2 Healthcare. And if you want to talk more about innovative healthcare strategies, you can always email me at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Finally, SG2 is a Vizient company, and there are a bunch of Vizient podcasts that you might like. You can find them at Vizient backslash podcasts. Have a great day.